Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that will transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm talking to Jonathan Ginsberg, who's a practicing attorney who wears two hats. For over 20 years, he's been at Ginsberg Law Offices, where his practice focuses on personal bankruptcy and social security disability claims. And for the past 12 years, he's also run Rent My Brain, an internet marketing consultancy targeted at lawyers. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Looking forward to speaking with you. Great. So in your law practice, you now focus on personal bankruptcy and social security disability. But right before we started recording this podcast, you told me a funny story of how you got started in bankruptcy. And I thought that maybe you could tell that story to the audience. Sure. Well, basically, I've been practicing bankruptcy really close to 30 years now. It's, it's even longer than I, uh, I'd like to think, but it's been going on since uh, probably the early 90s, late late 80s, early 90s. And uh, how I got involved in it is kind of a strange uh, situation. I was working in a small firm. I had a partner, and we were doing personal injury, workers' comp, kind of uh, just a general practice. And every third Friday, I was getting phone calls for bankruptcy. And I had no idea why, because I had never done bankruptcy work. I didn't knew nothing about it. But every third Friday, this went on for five or six months, I was getting phone calls, and not just one or two, I was getting six, seven, eight phone calls asking about bankruptcy, and I kept turning it down because I didn't know anything about it. And finally, after a couple of months, I said to my partner at the time, you know, this, there's a market out here for this. And so I started doing it and kind of learned a little bit about it. And it turned out later on, I found out that a, a friend of mine that I went to law school with had been working for one of the volume bankruptcy practices uh, in town. And he was not very happy with his boss because he wasn't making enough money or there was some issue they had had. And so he was the attorney of the day every third Friday doing intake. And so he basically would tell anybody who called, and this is a fairly large firm, did a lot of advertising. We don't do bankruptcy anymore called Jonathan Ginsburg. So <laughs> lo and behold, I was getting these phone calls every third Friday, and that's kind of what jump-started my bankruptcy practice. And, and because I had enough volume there, I was able to take a few cases, uh, kind of struggle my way through, find a mentor. Uh, I literally would go down to court and watch, is how I learned it. I made friends with some of the trustees and some of the, the, the paralegals from creditor firms, and then bought the program, which was very, very rough at the time, but uh, figured it out. And just, you know, my first few, I think, were, were nothing to be very proud of. But uh, once, once you do with bankruptcy, I think, once you've done 10 or 15, you know you know about 80% of what you need to know, and then it just kind of took on from there. Mm-hmm. When you say bought the program, is that what, what is that referring to? Uh, the, the preparation program I bought, uh, it was, it, I now use something called Best Case. At the time, it was a program that was put out by a company out of Minnesota, mm-hmm. and they had a separate program, one for Chapter 7, one for Chapter 13, and it would generate the forms. And of course, back then, you know, it was maybe 20, 25 pages uh, of forms, and a lot of it was kind of manual. You'd have to kind of fill in. Now, it's much more automated. It's 100 pages. But once I bought the, the preparation program, it really helped, you know, it helped you understand kind of what the process is. And so any I think who's starting bankruptcy would be wise to you know look at, at some of the different programs out there so they can prepare the, the petitions. You don't want to do it manually, certainly. Yeah. And nowadays, with the, with the uh, you know with the Chapter 13 plans being a lot more complicated, you really need a program to do it. And you know, in some ways, it kind of keeps people out of the practice, which is not a bad thing because I think folks who dabble in bankruptcy, those are all gone. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to spend $1,200 in a program, you can't really dabble in it. But back when I started, uh, there were a lot of general practitioners who do one bankruptcy a year, two bankruptcies a year and they could afford to do it mm-hmm. but I think those days are kind of over mm-hmm. well first a question about your buddy who was sending over all those calls yeah he was doing this and so he was friends enough with you that he could do this but he wasn't friends enough to give you a call and tell you what he was doing yeah no it was, it was really strange I mean and this is a guy that again I went to law school with nice guy still 
every once in a while run into him, but we were not particularly great friends. We were just, you know, we knew each other. He happened to be in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta. And I guess he heard, I don't know, I don't know, because he must have somehow thought I did bankruptcy or just thought he was going to do it. But literally, <laughs> he started sending stuff over, and I had no, no clue why. Never called me, never said anything at all. And I only found out later on when I ran into him someplace, he said, are you getting those bankruptcy leads I'm sending over? I'm, oh, you're, the, you're the one to blame for this. So. Oh, that's... That's good. It's great. Yeah, it's good. That's just, you know, I think a lot of lawyers, you know, you, they get into um, practice areas and there's really no rhyme or reason. I mean, my daughter is finishing up law school this year and she's trying to decide what to do. And I said, you know, it'll choose you in some ways. It's not going to be you, you're going to choose it. It'll choose you. <laughs> and sure enough, that's that's how it works. That's how it works. In terms of building the practice stuff, we actually built up from a very small practice we were doing, you know, 10 or 15, you know, every couple of months. And then it got to the point where we were doing 100 cases a month. We were, I think, the fourth largest bankruptcy firm in Georgia at one point and just doing 100 cases a month. And we had two or three lawyers and about five or six staff. And we were really churning out the, uh, the petitions. And of course, with bankruptcy, the problem is that it's a, not a very high margin practice area. So you got to really, really watch your, your money and watch the, the numbers. And so, you know, at the time, after doing that for a while, you know, I realized I was, you know, turning a lot of money, but I wasn't taking very much home. So I kind of scaled it back a little bit and uh, kind of got it to the point where it was, it was a little more profitable. We were making money out of it, and it was not, not, not just about volume because uh, mm-hmm. bankruptcy is, it can take a lot of resources. It's a lot of work, and of course, in Chapter 13, you're basically getting paid a flat fee uh, for five years worth of work. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I started, literally, it was I think $750 for a Chapter 13. Mm-hmm. You know, for five years of work work and that, that's not a whole lot of money but yeah it was it was something that at the time was pretty easy to grow because there was so much a demand for it mm-hmm. so how did you do that you went from five six phone calls that your friend sent over for free yep. to a hundred cases a month yep can you help me bridge the gap how did you get there well basically this is again pre-internet so the first thing was we use yellow pages, which I don't think work anymore. But at that time, uh, we bought, you know, kind of held our breath and bought a, a double truck ad in the yellow page, Atlanta yellow pages. So we had you know, a big two page ad. This is probably about a year or so in after we had kind of an idea of what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Bought the yellow page ad, and that really helped quite a bit. Then we went on radio. Wait, just stop for a moment. Like, yeah. Just to get a sense, a lot of younger attorneys in particular don't know how much of an investment that was. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that the amount that you wrote down on that check is forever burned into your brain. Oh, yeah. Can you can you share what you paid? It was about $2,500 a month. And this is back in 1991, 92. Mm-hmm. So this is a long time ago. And we were spending, you know, $2,500, $2,800 a month. And, of course, there's no guarantees. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, you know, you're still obligated to pay it. So it's it's quite a leap of faith to do that. And and it was, uh, believe me, every time, you know, the first couple of months we were writing, writing that check, it was, wow, this is really quite a quite an investment. Mm-hmm. But uh, it did work at that time. How long did it work for? Well, I think the Yellow Pages worked probably for a couple of years. The problem with it is, of course, that Yellow Page salespeople, with all due respect to them, they're trying to make a dollar, which I respect. They would go to, there would be, let's say for any one Yellow Page book, there would be, you know, 15 or 20 reps, and they'd go out and they would tell everybody that you'll be on the first page. And with the Yellow Pages, you need to really be on the first page. And so my last name is G, my partner's last name was G, so we were, you know, right in the middle. And the first year, we actually got a first or second page in the attorneys, you know, um, I guess in the book, and we got a, um, you know, we got a first 
first page and we were actually doing quite well. The second year, we were back on page, you know, 2025, it didn't do nearly as well. So fortunately, we had enough coming in that it, it didn't make that much of a difference. But Yellow Page kind of ran its course after just a couple of years. That was also at, at a time when the Yellow Page business became deregulated. And so instead of having just one book, you had sort of two, three, four, then all of a sudden you have 10 Yellow Page books. And it really started to split the market to the point where you really couldn't justify spending that kind of money because it was just, you know, first of all, it was, we weren't going to be in the first group of, of ads. And the second thing was there were so many other books that it started to really become a less effective. So I think we did the Yellow Pages for maybe two, three years and then just decided it just wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, we moved to, to radio. This was what kind of really built us. Okay, great. Can, can you tell me a little bit about, about that, how you built it on radio? Yeah, well, basically the radio, you know, at the time we, we looked at doing TV and we felt the TV was just not really hitting the right market because with bankruptcy, you want people who are employed and you also want to be able to target people at a certain age. So we started looking at radio. We did, a, you know, with radio, you've got stations that really skew towards, let's say, women. And you have a sta- stations that skew more towards an urban market. And you have stations that skew more countries. So we could try different ones. And of course, if it didn't work, it would, you know, it would, it would we could we could cut it off. So that was, uh, that was a positive. Basically with radio, again, the same sort of thing as with Yellow Pages, you've got to really watch your money. We hired an agency. Our agency basically put together some very fancy ads that were very, sounded really, really good. But again, they were charging us a 15% override and all the spend that we were, we were doing with the stations. And the, the ads really weren't working all that well. 60 second ads, it was getting some traffic. But I said to myself, you know, I don't necessarily need to pay these people to do this. So we terminated that agreement. And I actually recorded my own ad. And I did two 30 second ads. I did one for bankruptcy and one for personal injury. And it was just basically me talking. I wrote the ad uh, and you know, had a, a couple, you know, friends and so forth look at it. And basically, we were doing two 30-second ads on these different stations, and that really worked pretty well. That People responded to it. I didn't have to pay the, the 15% override. I was able to negotiate a pretty good deal with the radio station where they were treating us as an agency. I think we created an agency for that purpose. And the lesson is basically that, you know, if you use vendors, and, and they can be very helpful, but you have to really make sure you're getting value because in my experience, at least with the radio, the uh, the agency we were using was charging a lot of money. They they generated the ad, they, 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 which again, they produced. It sounded really good. They would come up with a schedule. And again, we weren't spending that much money, maybe two or $3,000 a month. And they ran the schedule and they just ran the same schedule. And so after you know five or six months of that, I'm thinking, well, you know, what are we paying them for? Mm-hmm. So I just did my own. We eventually got to the point where we were dropping probably $10,000 a month. And again, this was probably in the mid-90s on radio. And bankruptcy is very cyclical in that there will be times when bankruptcy is really hot. There'll be times when bankruptcy is not so hot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it was hot, it was really rolling. When it was not so hot, we were spending $10,000 a month and not doing much business at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just something you've got to be very nimble when you're doing advertising, whether it's TV or radio. You have to be very, very nimble because you can spend a lot of money very quickly and not see much results. So we tracked everything, uh, which I think is really important for any kind of marketing. You've got to track it all, where it's coming from, and make sure that you're getting your, your ROI because otherwise you can spend a lot of money and not get very much. So how did you track that? Did you use special phone numbers for each ad? 
Well, we, for the radio, we did not. And again, now I think it would be easier to do it that way. What we did is we had uh, pieces of paper. We called them green sheets, so they were green. And every call, they were all numbered. So every call that came in, uh, we would track to see where it came from and uh, and whether it turned in anything. And you could put that on a spreadsheet and you could figure out, okay, the, the, the radio generated you know 45 leads this week or this month and it turned into 14 cases or whatever it was. And you could figure out your cost per, uh, you know, per dollar spend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at a certain point, I don't remember the exact numbers, but at a certain level, it was profitable. At a certain level, it was not. So if you started to see that ROI drop, then you had to adjust your schedule and try a different station. Uh, You know, another thing that that I found with radio, and this is, this again, is is going back a ways, but at one point, you know, we were advertising on uh, an urban contemporary station that catered mostly African-American, and it was a a very, worked really, really well. A A second station came on board or came online that was catering to that same market and they were aver- their cost of advertising was about a, a tenth literally from the big station that's one number the station we were on was the largest station in Atlanta for that market and they were charging a fortune mm-hmm. uh, we started we, we identified this other station we tried it we found out that there was a lot of people who were listening to both stations they had them on you know both buttons on the radio two buttons on the radio and so we were getting about this I'd say about 90% of the result at about a tenth of the price Wow! and that worked really really well for quite a while until that little that station went out of business because the the Nielsen's or whatever they were using to track it was not showing they were getting the market, but we knew they were getting the market. Mm-hmm. And we sponsored, I think the Atlanta Hawks, you know, had a deal with them. We sponsored a, um, like one of the, the Hawks players was, you know, had a report. We sponsored that. We sponsored the traffic. We sponsored, you know, all kind of shows all day long. We ran all day long. And it, again, it was, you know, instead of spending 10000 I think we were spending maybe two, 3000 or even less than that, you know, for just ads at, you know, 20 $30 an ad mm-hmm. and just spending like crazy anything we could get. And it was just working great. So that was a really, you know, a, a great period of time where, where the, uh, the ads really worked. And again, it, it just boiled down to having to really be aware what the market was about, not necessarily trusting what anybody told you, but just having to look at the numbers and letting the numbers tell you what was going on. And if you do that, then, then that kind of advertising uh, can work. At least it did at the time. Absolutely. I'm a marketing guy, so when you say that you're really defining your customer avatar and then trying to find cost-efficient ways of reaching them, that's music to my ears. Absolutely, absolutely. And then we tried, after that, you know, the station went out of business and we tried some different stations. We actually found, for example, that country stations did not work well for bankruptcy, at least this is in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the folks that listened there were, tended to find bankruptcy, you know, morally wrong. They, they, I would get, you know, mail from people, literally letters like, how dare you, you know, suggest bankruptcy, it's not American. So we found that market did not work very well. Hmm. Um, you know, other, other markets did, but again, radio is really nice because you can segment and like I said, we had to really uh, test different ones. Uh, we tried TV, and literally, I was on—I was the talent on the TV station. You know, I would—I would appear. We you know, filmed it and everything. And again, it worked okay, but it just got very, very expensive mm-hmm. um, for, to do TV. So, and, and the big problem was the only places you could run would be the morning shows. You know, the Jerry Jerry Springer and those type of shows where you had people that were not working, and that doesn't really uh, work so well for bankruptcy. So mm-hmm. uh, that kind of uh, didn't really work all that well. On that note, for radio, how was drive time? Was it too expensive? Or? Drive drive time, yeah. We, we drive time very expensive. We typically did better in the afternoon drive. It was a little bit less money and tended to get the same results. And again, you got people that were working, so mm-hmm. we would do a lot of. Um, you could buy at the time, and I, don't, I haven't bought radio in years, but you could buy kind of. Um, 
segments where, where depending on, on how specific you want it to be, so we could say, I want, you know, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and, and they would they would choose what you would get. You could do that. I think with radio, when you, you know, in the block, in other words, a radio station will sell a block of ads, and there may be six or seven ads in a break. So if you're number one, you're going to do better than if you're number six. Mm-hmm. And so part of what you know, we would pay for would be, I want to be the first or second ad in the break, mm-hmm. and we would do better. But you have to really watch it, because if you didn't, they would put you in, you know, the number six block all the time. Mm-hmm. But we found afternoon drive did pretty well. Usually afternoons did better than morning. And, and I tried the morning drive. That was real expensive. But, you know, if we could get it, it was great. But it was just a very, very, that's the most expensive uh, radio time to get. So afternoon, afternoons and afternoon drive did, did generally pretty well on the radio. Mm-hmm. And so on the radio side, when did things wind down for you? Was it when the second urban contemporary station went out of business? Yeah, I think when they went out of business and we tried some different other radio stations, and at that point Atlanta was getting was really hot with radio, mm-hmm. and the prices just got outrageous. So you, you know the, the numbers just didn't work. So that was the late nineties, or late nineties. Yeah, it, it was just a real high high watermark for radio, and, and we were seeing you know what we were spending a hundred dollars, hundred and fifty was kind of our max. It was you know now two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollars a pop, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of money. It just and, and given the margins with bankruptcy, it just did not make a lot of sense. So we kind of transitioned out of that. Um, around that time, my firm that I had been at was um, kind of going through a disillusion. So I was on my own at that point. I was started, kind of starting over in the, the, late, uh, the late 90s. And so I wasn't really advertising very much. It was pretty much word of mouth. I was doing mostly social security at that point anyway. Mm-hmm. And then did not get back into to advertising or marketing much for bankruptcy until about 2004, 2005 when I started putting out websites. So mm-hmm. there was a gap of about four or five years where I wasn't really marketing for it. It was just kind of word of mouth. I had a lot of a big client base. So I was getting some, some leads, but I really couldn't even handle it because I was so busy just trying to get my new practice set up. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the social security disability side. That's a natural segue. Sure. How'd you start getting into that? Well, again, it was, you know, it sort of chose me. I mean, we were doing, um, at this, my old firm, we were doing a good bit of workers' comp and personal injury and people would, would come in and say, you know, I'm applying for social security disability. And can you help me? And after, you know, my rule of thumb, if I'm turning somebody down four or five times or turning people down four or five times and I'm getting enough calls, it's worth taking a look at it. So I would say this is probably mid to late 90s, probably mid 90s, more so the late 90s, started getting more inquiries about it, actually hired a paralegal who said that, you know, she had run a practice for another law firm. (laughs) Um, Turns out she really didn't know what she was doing. And then, you know, I remember one Saturday walking in her office and just seeing it was a disaster, you know, just unopened letters and things like that, you know, realized I needed to really be involved in it and just started looking at it. And it took me a while to figure out what to do. Uh, The story I always tell was I had a, a hearing in front of the judge and I was always very prepared, but probably not with the right information. The judge, after the hearing, said, you know, will you stick around for a minute? He said, you know, mm-hmm. I just, I can see you're prepared, you're working hard, but you're focusing on the wrong thing. And so he kind of walked me through what the focus needed to be, and that kind of opened my eyes to what Social Security was about. And once I understood what I was trying to get, then it started to make a lot more sense. So, and the focus on Social Security, by the way, is uh, focusing on somebody's work capacity or, or problems with work capacity, not about the medical problems. And the example I always give is you could have, you know, four herniated discs and you could have two knee replacements and Mm-hmm. be completely psychotic, but if you can work, you're not disabled. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be something that, that leaves you unable to work. And so once I kind of focused on that, it started to make a lot more sense and then, um, you know, started to build that up a little bit. And then that was, uh, you know, kind of a practice area that's really kind of uh, sustained me ever since. You know, you mentioned workers' comp as a natural referral source for Social Security disability. Mm-hmm. 
I could also see how a lot of folks who file for bankruptcy will be interested in Social Security disability and, and vice versa. Yeah, it can, can be. I mean, bankruptcy, the big difference is with Social Security, you, you, you have to have people that are not working. Mm-hmm. And bankruptcy, believe it or not, you know, and I'm sure your audience knows, you got to be working. You have to have people that have something to lose. Mm-hmm. So there were people that were filing for Social Security that fell behind in their bills because they couldn't work. Of course, a lot of those people are judgment-proof, so there wasn't necessarily a need to put them in bankruptcy. But yes, there was some of that. With comp, it was more, yeah, there was more Social Security flowing from that because these are people that had serious injuries at work. Had been out of work for a long time, maybe had a settlement. The settlement could pretty much be protected or exempted in bankruptcy, and they wanted just to get rid of it because really, you know, what drives bankruptcy is not debt. That bankruptcy is driven by desire for peace of mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, again, if you do bankruptcy or, you know, listeners do bankruptcy, you know that people are really focused on the stress mm-hmm. of getting these phone calls, not knowing what to do. And that's really what drives bankruptcy. And one of the messages that I was used in radio and on TV was not about get rid of your debt. Everybody talks about that. I was talking about get your peace of mind back. Mm-hmm. And that really was what was what drove the bankruptcy. Yeah, I do marketing consulting for AdWords and something that gets a very high response rate is stop creditor phone calls and Yep. It gets a higher response rate than eliminate debt. So Yep. Absolutely. Because if you're looking, what's the pain? Mm-hmm. And the pain is, is, is the stress. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I did, in fact, when we were on the radio, I didn't even talk about this, but just briefly, uh, I'll say that that I wasn't really asking people to call me for bankruptcy. I was saying, call me and I'll send you this guidebook, this little thing I've written about how to eliminate stress, how to deal with debt, mm-hmm. how to recover from bankruptcy. And so people were, it was a lead generation tool. People were calling about that. Mm-hmm. And that was something that, uh, you know, I think really drove a lot of response because it was really low pressure. Mm-hmm. giving them something for free, and that really tended to, to move the needle. Mm-hmm. How did you publish that book? Was it just photocopied? or Self-published. I, I just yeah, I just had a, my copier, and we printed it, and it was, it was called The Consumer's Guide to Credit and Bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I'd worked with a marketing consultant back in the early 90s, and it was his, his brainchild. It was a really good idea. And basically, it was just a mostly bullet point list where we would just identify the pain points and how I could solve those pain points. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's that's what we did. So it was really more of a lead generation tool. I think in some ways it was sort of a precursor to what the internet does now, where you could offer a lot of information. But it was something you would literally mail out, but people would get it. Uh, we use magnets. That was another thing we did. You know, my attorneys are, you know, in our firm name and our phone number. We would get cases from people when they buy a refrigerator. Literally, they'd buy a secondhand refrigerator. My magnet was on there. They'd call me. Uh, so you know, you had to just be a little creative with that sort of stuff. But that's those. But it's, I think it was really about you know, as you talked about, you know with your uh, your AdWords, you have to identify the pain points, but what are people focused on? It's not about the debt. They don't care about the debt. They care about what, what keeps them up at night. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to crawl in their head and say, okay, what's keeping you up at night? And, mm-hmm. and the phone calls and the letters and, and the threat of repossession, the threat of foreclosure and, and, and the horror stories. And that's, that's really what drove the calls. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you have a nice sales funnel there. Do you still send out that book? No, I don't. I put it on on the website, and okay. basically, with just to give you a brief overview of the web, around two thousand three, two thousand four was I think when the internet started to become a little more viable as a commercial tool. And at that point, nobody was doing it. Mm-hmm. It was just 
you know, it, it was a very, nobody knew anything about it. I think a lot of people were very, were very skeptical. The people that, at the time that were, uh, that owned law firms were mostly a little bit older. You know, they were in their 40s and 50s and they were just not going to go on the internet. Um, I kind of like technical stuff. So I just said, you know what, let's see if we can figure it out. And I hired a company to do a website for me. They did an okay job, but I looked at the program they used and said, okay, I can, I can do that. So I bought the program. It was called Net Objects Fusion, which is still around, but I, I don't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. Built a website with that and then put it out there. And once uh, once you do one, it just wasn't that hard. So I started putting out websites. And I'd say by 2006, 2007, I had you know not just one website. And at that point, I kind of made a decision. Instead of having one website, I'm going to have multiple websites, one for bankruptcy, one for Social Security, one for workers' comp, mm-hmm. one for PI. And I was basically, you know, there's an old saying in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> well, I was, I controlled Atlanta. I mean, I had, you know, there was no competition. So all my websites were number one for all these terms. And so it was just rolling in and mm-hmm. everything, comp, personal injury, bankruptcy, it was a really great time, and it just really kind of coincided with the change in the bankruptcy law, where we were literally getting unsolicited questionnaires, I mean, coming in by the dozen. I mean, we were filing cases. I mean, I was working seven days a week, you know, hiring people just to get, because the law was about to change, and everybody was afraid they weren't going to be able to file, so it was a really, really hot time. I think it was, you know, I think it was 2005, I believe 2005, I can't remember now. Yeah, 2006 was the last year, and the volume was twice that of even 2007 yeah and we were leading into the the bubble bursting in the housing market so yep 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 so uh, that's that's what you know that's what the, when the web was really rolling there was probably about a five or six year head start i had when nobody was doing it mm-hmm. and a lot of the big publishers were you know selling cookie cutter sites with their own directories and they just weren't working you know i could publish as much as i wanted you know i could change it whenever i wanted and i did and i had more content and better content you know most of my competitors were we protect your rights we fight for you well, what does that mean it means nothing we are a debt relief agency file that's under the bankruptcy code right it, it was all this nonsense didn't say, you know, I went to this great school. Nobody cared. But when I was saying, this is how to stop a foreclosure, this is how to stop a repossession, this is, you know, this is how the law works, this is what to expect at your 341 hearing, mm-hmm. you know, all that content. So I had, you know, 50, 60 pages of content and people were eating it up mm-hmm. because it was so unique. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, and to this day, I mean, that that's sort of my motto is I just believe in giving a lot of good content and I change it a lot. I do, now I do a lot of video, but at the time it was just written content. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that that's, that's what's always worked for me is just giving a lot of good information and explaining to your target market, you know, how you're going to solve their problem and you can really convince them and they start to know you and trust you because you're giving them such, you're giving away so much. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, bankruptcy, is, I'm sure your listeners know, you can't do it on your own. It's just, it's too, it's just, there's so many different picky and rules. You can't do it on your own. You have to have a lawyer to do it. And so, you know, part of the, the, the key with success in bankruptcy marketing is to convince your market that you know what you're doing. You have their, you're, you know, you, you, you can advise them and you're, you're going to tell them the truth, mm-hmm. you know, that if it's not not appropriate to file bankruptcy, you're going to tell them that. Um, I remember I used to tell, you know, every phone call I would talk to people, I'd say, first thing I'm going to tell you is don't file bankruptcy unless you absolutely have to, mm-hmm. because it's not a good thing for your credit. And people would appreciate that because it was, it was the honest truth. And that's what I would tell. If my cousin called, I would tell him that, you know, if, if a good friend called, I would tell them that. And, and that's what I would tell my client. It really put it at work. Mm-hmm. One of the things that actually really impressed me about your bankruptcy site was that you don't ask potential clients to fill out, you know, that huge 50 page form that you need in order to put into your software program right to prep the uh, the filing yep instead you have them fill out a two-page form yep so that you get 
just enough information so that you can give them good advice when you meet with them. Exactly. Well, you know, I think that if you do bankruptcy work for you know even a small amount of time, you can tell pretty quickly what the, what the problem is and what the solution is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, nobody, you know, I would have too many people that would say, okay, I'll fill it out, and they wouldn't fill it out. Yeah. Nobody wants to fill out a 50-page form. So, you know, doing a two-page or a three-page form where you get just enough information, you can see they've got a house that they're behind in. So, boom, that tells you it's probably going to be a Chapter 13. Mm-hmm. They've got mostly credit card debts and unemployed. Mm-hmm. That's probably a Chapter 7. You can deduce from, from two pages mostly what you need to know. And even if you don't, you, you have something to start the conversation with. And, you know, I can tell in about 10 minutes what they need to do, if anything. But, yeah, the, the two-page form is something that I think people appreciate. And that's something that I recommend that folks do because it's just, it, it, sells, it just saves a lot of time. And you'll have more people willing to uh, fill it out. I mean, yes, I'm absolutely with you. And in fact, I think it's genius. That's why I wanted to highlight it. But the thing that particularly impressed me is that you must have evolved your way towards a two-page form. Yep. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, I mean, did you track what percentage of leads would actually fill out your 50-page form versus your two-page form and, and how that transformed your practice? Well, again, after the big rush of bankruptcy, when the law is about to change, you know, I had my you know, it was probably a 30-page form, which I had evolved over time uh, to make it easier to fill out. And it was just people weren't filling it out or they would fill out, you know, the first three or four pages and they would say, you know, I'll give you the rest later. Mm-hmm. And it just, I remember just, you know, it's probably in the shower <laughs> when I do my best thinking. Mm-hmm. just occurred to me like, you know, this just makes sense to do this as, as something a lot more simple because I don't need that much information. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, you do this for a while, you know what to do. And so I it literally kind of, it was just a you know, maybe a little bit of inspiration or, or whatever. I just said, let me try a two-page form. And then, you know, I got a much, much higher response rate from that. I didn't, I don't have the numbers anymore, but I mean, it was certainly, I'd say for every 30-page form, I was getting 10 two-page forms. Wow. So it was, a, it was a pretty significant difference. And it was pretty obvious to me very quickly that that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that nowadays with online, you can have people do stuff online. People like to fill out forms. They don't have a problem filling out the form. They'll give you a lot of personal information, but you don't want to make it like homework mm-hmm. because nobody wants to do the homework and they don't know you, they don't know anything about you, they don't know if this is even something they want to do. I find that if they fill out the two-page form, you get enough information, you can have an intelligent conversation with them, you can predict for the most part what they're going to need. And then when you talk to them at that point, you can say, okay, now let's do the, the whole process. Here's what I need. Here's the page on my site where everything you need to know, here's a link to mm-hmm. credit counseling, here's a link to get your credit report. And, you know, it takes a little time to do it, but at least they've they've invested enough. They've invested either the, the 10 minutes to do the form and then the 30-minute phone call. Now it's it's a lot easier to say, now invest two or three or five hours with me to get the rest of the paperwork in. So that's the logic. That's great. I want to drill down on that because you said 30-minute phone call. Do you kind of version it so that after they fill out the two-page form, they talk to you on the phone for 30 minutes versus coming in? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 30 30 minutes is a general, I mean, it could be less. But yeah, I think that I I pretty much always felt like they, you know, my clients need to do something. They need to have a little bit of investment. And again, filling out a two-page form, if they're not willing to do that, then that sort of says they're not real serious about this. Mm-hmm. And there are people clearly that are very concerned about privacy or submitting things. And I, you know, I, I tell them, fax it to me. Don't email it. Fax it. So that way it's a little more secure. But I find for the most part, that if they're willing to do two pages, I can get on the phone with them. That's where you do your, you know, you, they start to know and trust you, mm-hmm. you know, because you're giving them good information. I'm not pushy at all. Mm-hmm. Again, I always tell people, don't do this. And, you know, after the phone call, they start talking and they'll tell you what they need. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's just if you're if you're good on the phone and you're able to listen to people, but also know how to get them off a tangent. I think one of the things that, you know, bankruptcy lawyers know is that people will start to tell you their life story. Yes. 
you have to be able, you have to be polite and, and be able to say, let me get you off that. Let's focus on the issue at hand. If you've got the two-page form, let's talk about your mortgage. Let's talk about your car. Let's talk about your credit card debt. And you know, there's a little bit of counseling involved where people want to unburden themselves and explain why they got in trouble, which is okay. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I would say, you know, I can talk to you for 30 minutes. And, and I got to the point even where if it got beyond 30 minutes, I'd say, we've all been on the phone for 30 minutes. I'm more than happy to sit down with you and discuss this further. But, I'm, you know, I have to get paid for my time. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to talk more, then I'm going to have to charge you. Okay. And, you know, some people would say that most people have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll apply to your underlying case. But some would say, you know, well, I, I don't want, I'm not ready to do that. And that would tell me they're not ready to go. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those people would end up calling back. So, you know, you have to be prepared to say, my time is valuable. I'm selling my time just like if I went to a furniture store. I'm selling that couch or that chair mm-hmm. and not let people take advantage of me. There are going to be a percentage of people that are looking for free information mm-hmm. and you, know, you can figure that out pretty quickly. But I think if you're sincere and you listen to what folks are talking about and you answer their questions and give them good advice, then it can go a long way to uh, you know getting people to really know, like, and trust you and then they'll come in. So when they come in, before they come in for their in-person consultation, do you offer an in-person consultation? I do. I do, and I pretty much always want them to fill out the form ahead of time. The 30-page form this time. The 30-page form. Yeah. Or it can be, you know, they can the, the first 10 pages of it, then the credit reports are fine, too. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, bankruptcy clients, you know, with all due respect to the folks following bankruptcy, and, and you know, these are honest, good, hardworking people that just have fallen on difficult time, but in many cases, they're professional procrastinators. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're filing bankruptcy is they've waited too late, or they've made a bad decision, mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't want to pull the trigger on it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to be able to weed out the people that are just trying to get a lot of free information and and they're shopping for price. And so at some point, you got to say, look, you got to fill out this form. I can't give you good advice unless you give me the raw information I need. Mm-hmm. So again, if they don't want to fill out the form, they're saying to me, I'm not prepared to invest my time with you, you know, that I'm not prepared to invest my time with them. So yeah, you, you have to, I think, be able to say to people, and, and this is one of the hardest things about practicing law in general, mm-hmm. you got to be able to say no. You got to be able to say this is going to cost money because yeah, there are in every city, and Atlanta has them. There are the high volume guys that you know the bankruptcy mill firms mm-hmm. that do you know 100, 200, 300 cases a month, and they'll take anything, mm-hmm. and you get what you pay for, and you got to be prepared to say I'm not going to be that. Mm-hmm. You know I'm going to charge a little bit more because you're going to get you know you get me on the phone, and then you get me at the hearing, and you're not going to you know this is not you know and I, I always give you example you know with the high volume guys, and some of them do for some bankruptcies are fine, but you go to court and you have lawyers that look like they got out of law school last week mm-hmm. saying, is Mr. Jones in the courtroom, <laughs> Mr. Smith? And they spend five minutes with them before the 341, then they're zooming off to another one. Yeah. Well, if that's what you want, you pay a little bit less. If you want, you know, if you want somebody who's done it for 30 years, who's seen it all, you pay a little bit more. Yeah. And you can't be embarrassed or afraid to say that. Absolutely. And I think that's the that's important to, to, to keep in mind. I interviewed a bankruptcy attorney recently who said that every time he goes to court or a trustee meeting, someone who's filing for bankruptcy will walk up to him and say, are you my attorney? Does that happen to you? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's happened to me quite a bit. So, yeah, it's it's something that, that happens uh, a good bit. And, uh, you know, of course, I have to say who you're looking for. And I can usually point them out to, you know, to the right person. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, my clients know me because they've met me. And we've talked and we've we've had a, a long conversation. And they've seen me typically on video. Mm-hmm. And so they know me. And I greet them by name. And that's, you know, you see other 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 debtors there looking around saying, why is my lawyer doing that? Mm-hmm. Or why is my lawyer not here? You know, and, and they're, in fact, in Atlanta, and I suspect this is true in other big markets, there are lawyers in 
all they do is, is contract work. They just do 341 hearings. Mm-hmm. So there will be a lawyer who, and, and look, you know, there are times when, you know, if you have a schedule conflict, you may need to use one of those, sure. which is okay. I mean, I, I have another attorney in the office that we will we can cover for each other. But you know, if if you your only inter- interaction with the law firm is you've gone, you've met with a paralegal, sp- spoken to a lawyer for five minutes, you get to court and there's a contract lawyer you've never met before who knows nothing about you or your case, and they're calling for you. That's not going to give you a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And if you want referrals from your your client base, then you, you gotta you know you have to. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's so confidential in your clients. Mm-hmm. So, Jonathan, you've mentioned defining a process for your social security disability practice. I also saw online that you're a big fan of E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. A- absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a, a huge fan as well. Yep. He talks a lot about transforming your business so that you stop working in the business by doing the work and you f- focus on working on the business. I can see, when, you know, when you're working on your marketing, you're working on the business rather than in the business. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how this approach has shaped your practice? Because to me, the it's it's uh, Michael Gerber's work has influenced you deeply, but that's just... Yep, absolutely. I think he's, he's a brilliant, and it really resonated with me because you can spend a lot of time, and he calls it being a technician, mm-hmm. where you can be the greatest bankruptcy lawyer in the world or disability or whatever, but it doesn't make any difference if you're not generating business. So I literally spend half my day marketing. Mm-hmm. So I get up you know, in the morning, I work out, and then I come home and I spend until usually about one o'clock working on adding web content, doing videos, responding to comments on my videos, which is a big deal. I publish on Avo. I publish on wherever I can publish. You know, I'll do guest posts with people, always happy to do those, but just getting the word out because you constantly have to have new stuff coming out because the search engines like that. And yeah, you, you, that's, that's really what I spend my time doing. I have another attorney in the office, very, very intelligent young woman woman who, who we've worked together for many years, and she does probably more of the day-to-day than I do at this point, but she wants to focus on doing the bankruptcy work, and so I keep my hand in it, do a few cases, but she does more of it now at this point, and so, yeah, I'm generating the business, and she's doing the, the day-to-day, because bankruptcy can be very time-consuming, mm-hmm. and like I said, for me, I think my best, highest, and best you know, value is is marketing, is generating you know new content, new videos, new audios, all different ways to reach out to people and, and reaching them on in many different platforms as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's what Gerber talks about, and he's absolutely right. You got to work on your business, not not just in it. Now, for me, Michael Gerber spoke to me because I was the workaholic technician that was doing 100 hours a week and I kind of hit a breaking point and then I I don't recall how I found the book I bought the book a number of years ago but then I read it and then I said wow this is this is what I have to do for the rest of my life was that a similar thing for you or well yeah I think I think I heard of it originally I was probably at a marketing conference and I try to go to those you know at least every other year if not every year I'd also seen a fellow named Robert Cialdini speak and you may be familiar with him from Influence he wrote the book Influence which is another must have book and it just really opened my eyes because I'd never really understood that the whole marketing concept and then of course I started reading about Dan Kennedy and some of his things and, and then um, just really started to get more involved in the learning about marketing but you know Influence really 
brought to a science about how you know how to influence people in an ethical way. And of course, Michael Gerber talks about the, the process. And so, learning about these marketing techniques and applying them to law, not a lot of people do it, and not a lot, a lot of lawyers do it. I think lawyers prefer to just write a check and say, "Okay, you take care of this for me." But you gotta can't really do that. You gotta just get involved, and you gotta think about what the message you're sending is. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I heard about the book at a, at a uh, conference. Got it. I, and there's a, you know there's other books like it that, that are kind of more specific to law. But yeah, I think that's a, a real, real a classic, and I, I try to reread it periodically. Mm-hmm. Influence again, a great, great book, and things like that have been very, very useful. But yeah, I think it's you know I just made a decision. I don't want to just churn away. You know, and quite honestly, I mean, I'm at the point now where I'm I'm 56 years old. You know, when I made a, a vow to myself when I'm 50 years old, I don't want to be churning out chapter seven cases and, mm-hmm. and just waiting for the next one to show up. So you know, that was sort of my goal. And like, okay, I got to find something else I can do that you know where I can still make money from this and, and provide a good service. And so just focused on on sending the message out. Mm-hmm. So we we touched on this before, but bankruptcy filing volume is down about half from its peak in 2010. Yep. So filings have gone down. You've been able to to manage that. Have you been able to manage that because of your other practice with a social security disability? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, and for me, you know, I made the decision once the numbers got below a certain point, I wasn't going to buy advertising anymore just because the numbers didn't work. So mm-hmm. everything I'm getting now is pretty much organic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, I think bankruptcy, my feeling is that the recovery, we have this big housing crash, uh, 2008, 2009. The recovery has really benefited folks that are college educated, white collar folks. Uh, the people that really are the, the bankruptcy market, those are folks that are making you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year. You know, if those people have not really benefited from the quote-unquote recovery. Mm-hmm. And you also find that the lenders out there, be it credit card lenders or mortgage lenders, car lenders, they're not loaning to those people. Mm-hmm. And so the issues that got people in trouble that would drive them to file bankruptcy, there's no, there's no debt out there. There's not a lot of credit card debt. Now, that's starting to change. I'm starting to see the last year or so, the amount of credit card debt has really started to rise you're seeing student loan debt being a big problem, and we can talk about that. There's, there's not a lot of great bankruptcy options for that, but it does does interfere with household budgets. And so you're starting to see people getting in trouble again. And I think underwriting standards are beginning to loosen up because, again, human nature is what it is. Lenders, credit card companies, they're greedy. They want to make money. So they want to loan to whoever's going to be – they want to push the envelope. They want to, to loan to, to people that are maybe a little more marginal because that's where they're going to make their money. Mm-hmm. And my guess is over the next two or three years, we're going to start to see bankruptcy creep back up because some of the factors, the foreclosures, repossessions, you know, credit card debt, it's going to get out of control again. Human mm-hmm. nature does not change. And I've been through a number of these cycles and it's it's happening again. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm in my 40s, but I remember the, the dot-com bust and then the... Mm-hmm. Uh, that recovery was slow, and then there's the the housing bubble, and who 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 knows what the next one is? But uh, right. Well, I remember post nine eleven. I mean, you know that that basically it really you know. Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, I worked on Wall Street then, so I remember. Oh yeah, that. it was. I mean, there's always going to be something that's going to drive it. And like I said, the last four or five years, I think there's actually been there's been certainly people have been more aware of the 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 danger of debt, and so you've had less of it. And I think the underwriting standards have been very very tight. That's starting to loosen. So I. I suspect that the cycle is going to hit pretty hard the next two or three years would be my guess. Mm. If you were a lawyer just practicing bankruptcy, yeah, we've talked about the, the credit cycle and how it can lead to boom and bust times. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend increasing revenue or just diversifying your practice by adding other lines? Yeah, I would diversify because I think bankruptcy is just too cyclical. Mm-hmm. I 
think that it's, you know, it's also, quite frankly, one of the issues with bankruptcy is that it's expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, now that there's more liability on lawyers and the, the petitions are longer, you know, when I started out, I was charging $500 for a Chapter 7 and 750 for a 13. Now it's in the 1500 buck range for a Chapter 7. This is before filing fees and maybe 4000 4500 for a Chapter 13. Not up front, but it's still a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, there is definitely some downward pressure on fees. There's volume guys or, or people that are willing to try to take less. So again, you, you got to be careful not to make this a loss leader. But I think bankruptcy has a place. It's a good practice area because it's always going to be there, but absolutely diversify, find something else. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I know a lot of people do domestic relations, some do criminal, some do, you know, like make me social security. Mm-hmm. You know, PI is always, a, is always an evergreen practice area. But yeah, I think it's wise to have two or three different practice areas because you just cannot assume that bankruptcy is going to always pay the bills. And there are times when it will, mm-hmm. but you got to be careful because, uh, you know, I've, I've seen it go from, you know, really rocking and rolling to almost nothing and almost overnight. And that, mm-hmm. that's, that's one of the downsides to bankruptcy. Well, one of the upsides of bankruptcy is that it's so counter cyclical that it can counterweight another practice area. So can, can do. And again, my feeling is that bankruptcy works best as a practice area when times are actually improving mm-hmm. because you have people that are optimistic, they overspend, they over leverage. When people are unemployed and they have, they're really putting, playing everything close to the vest, those people don't file bankruptcy mm-hmm. because they're really, really careful. What drives bankruptcy? Someone who's having a good year, they have a lot of overtime and they spend based on that, that overtime. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't happen next year. Mm-hmm. So things are improving. That's what drives bankruptcy. And like I said, this past recovery has really not benefited the bankruptcy market so much. So that's why those folks have not overspent to the point where they need to file bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So, but I think that we'll see more credit be extended and we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's going to boom again. I also saw that you're the Social Security Disability Practice Instructor at Solo Practice University, which I hadn't heard of. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what inspired you to do that? Yeah, it's online. I'm, I'm not, I, I simply am an instructor there. There's a woman named Susan Cartier-Libel who owns it, and she is an attorney. I think she's up in the Northeast. I'm not sure in New Hampshire or, or Massachusetts. Very, very nice woman. And she put this together where basically she saw a need for either lawyers that were brand new, and of course, a lot of lawyers coming out of school can't find jobs mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of jobs out there. Mm-hmm. Or lawyers or you know had been in practice for a while that were being laid off or having to transition, having to become solos without really intending to do so. And so she's like, she said to her, I think, said to herself, I think that there is a market for lawyers that need to learn the nuts and bolts of how to do this mm-hmm. and not about the theory, because theory you can learn any place, but law practice is about doing. And so she found people that were, you know, had been in practice for a while that were willing to do this. I don't get paid for it, but it's just a way to kind of give back a little bit and tell folks, you know, how I do it. And I do it in Social Security about how to set up a practice, what to look for, how to choose the right cases, how to develop them, some of the tricks of the trade, doing hearings and things like that. There are people who do the same thing. I'm not sure who's doing the bankruptcy. She wanted me to do the bankruptcy one, but I just couldn't, I don't have the, the, the bandwidth for it. Mm-hmm. But there's literally anything and everything you can imagine for that. And I think it's, I'm not sure how she charges, whether it's monthly or one time, but it's a, it's a for-profit uh, entity. Sure. But it's a very, very, I think, useful tool for people entering solo practice. 
if a bankruptcy attorney wanted to diversify a little bit and check out social security disability, that's one resource they could check out. Right. Or they, right, they could do that. They could learn about domestic. They could learn about criminal. And it also gives you somebody to call. Because I think one of the things that as a solo, especially if you're brand new or just been out of practice for practice four or five years, having somebody to call, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I do this? It can be really, really valuable. And it's going to be hard sometimes to find somebody in your locale because they don't want to educate their competitors. Mm-hmm. I think that networking is really important. And and you'll find people that are willing to mentor you or answer questions, and that, that's that's a very valuable resource. Yeah. Now we've we've touched on student loan debt several times. It's obviously exploded. Right. At the same time, the number of legal options to eliminate student loans is pretty limited. Right. So my first question on this topic is, what percentage of potential bankruptcy clients with student loan problems are you able to help? Very good question. I think that I went and I, I got myself educated, went to a couple of seminars about student loan debt, and the thought was that there was a market for people that needed assistance filling out the income-based repayment forms and then filling out the, this is for federal loans, mm-hmm. and filling out some of the, the renewals for these income-based repayment forms. And then there's also a market for people with private student loans that needed to either pursue Fair Debt Collection Practices Act against them or, or somehow litigate. I have not found that to be a viable practice area. That's just me. There may be others who have, mm-hmm. but I've just not seen that in particular as a practice area. But in bankruptcy, what student loans do is it eats up budgets. So there are people that come to see me that have just huge amounts of student loan debt where they're, they're you know, they have a house payment that's going essentially to student loan debt. And so we can put them in a bankruptcy either to Chapter 7 to get rid of everything else so they can allocate all their remaining resources to student loan debt, mm-hmm. which is one theory, or they can go into a Chapter 13 where they can set the payment at some number. It doesn't eliminate the student loans. It doesn't even reduce the balance all that much, but it gives them a four or five-year breather where they can deal with their other debt and maybe get themselves in a position where they've got more income coming in where they can deal with the student loan. So in some cases, a Chapter 13 can, be, can simply be just buying time mm-hmm. with student loan. But I, but I would say the bankruptcy clients that I see easily half or more have some student loan debt, mm-hmm. and so we have to address it in some way. Mm-hmm. But it can either make bankruptcy more complicated or, or it can dictate what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these people with large student loan balances, they have these five-year payment plans that you just described, and they still have a relatively high student loan balance at the end of that five years. Is there anything a bankruptcy lawyer can do in that situation? Well, I mean, the, the only thing I can I tell people, again, is this will give you a chance to try to generate more income. You can do another Chapter 13. I mean, there's one theory out there of just filing repetitive Chapter 13s to keep buying time to delay the inevitable mm-hmm. until you get to a point where you're at retirement and, and you have no income and then try to do something there. There's also some thought that at some point Congress will change the law and make private student loan debt dischargeable in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but that certainly could happen. Obviously, if it's federal student loan debt, they can do an income-based repayment plan. Mm-hmm. So those are the things. It's not really a great solution, in all honesty. I mean, there's not a lot you can do with it, but by time. But again, for a lot of folks, that's what they need. They mm-hmm. just want the time. They want to eliminate you know, the stress of having the wolf at the door, and they want to be able to just deal with the other stuff, and then we'll deal with bankruptcy later. And to me, that's a little, I find that a little disconcerting because that's not solving a problem. That's just pushing it down the road. Mm-hmm. But depending on someone's station in life, you know, they, they'd rather put their allocate the resources to putting their kids through college or, or you know, doing 
you know, saving for retirement, and then just they'll deal with the student loan debt down the road. Yeah, it's just a travesty in the sense that bankruptcy is, is a promise to give fresh starts to people who are in financial troubles, yep. and student loans just this is this giant loophole. Yeah, well, look, I think I, I think that bankruptcy, you know, as the law was changed, and even some of the, the tweaks ever since, bankruptcy used to be a fairly complete form of relief. Mm-hmm. And I think there's all these different, like the old man in the sea, you know, little bites out of it. This is not dischargeable. This you can't do. And so it's gotten to the point where, in some ways, bankruptcy has really become a a tool to buy time. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you can. I remember years ago, I had a chapter, a trustee tell me, U.S. trustee tell me, we don't like Chapter Sevens. We want to push people into Chapter Thirteen. Well, Chapter Thirteen, they also the trustees in Thirteen demand every penny. Mm-hmm. And but yet, you can't put money aside for emergency. So you know, I think a third of Chapter 13's work. So I've gotten a little cynical about it. If I can put someone at Chapter 7, that's what I'm going to do. 13's, in some ways, I don't expect them to work. Mm-hmm. If they do, it's a bonus. But I mean, Chapter 13's are really difficult to make work because, you know, what's the odds somebody's going to have five years of steady income mm-hmm. with no emergencies? It's just not going to happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a little bit about the buying time, and I think that's kind of what you have to look at it. And, and again, we didn't make the law as attorneys. We just have to try to make it work for our clients. And if that's the best you know, use of Chapter 13 for our clients, then, then that's that's what you do. Absolutely. I'm not holding my breath, though, for Congress to pass any legislation, let alone. No, I'm not either, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. We just never, never know. But I'm not holding my breath either. As a society, we've got these trillions of dollars now. Or I don't, some huge number that blows my mind every time I see it. Right. It, it's unimaginable. It, it's just just seems like we have to deal with it. I personally know someone that, I know several people that have gone off the grid to hide for their student loans. Oh, yeah. So I don't see really how that benefits society. No, it doesn't. And I think that at the end of the day, I mean, student, you know, again, you can, I don't get on my soapbox, but I mean, part of the problem is that the Department of Education makes these loans so freely available. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, how many 17-year-olds do you know that really understand the implications of signing this piece of paper yeah. that's going to put them in debt for $100,000 with interest accruing? Mm-hmm. They don't. And yet, but that's what the system does. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's kind of a, a screwed up system. And, and obviously, I try to tell my friends, and, and I'm at the point, I've got a lot of friends who have kids that are in, entering college and so forth, and whatever I've had a chance to tell them, don't take out private student loans. They're the, I think I call them the tool of the devil, the spawn <laughs> of the devil, private student loans. They're awful. Don't do that. You're much better off going to an inexpensive state school and not racking up these student loan debts. Because what are you supposed to do? I mean, I mean I've talked to people, well, my kid wants to be a, either a public school teacher or a what some sort of a public service type of thing, which mm. again, in, in, for public student loans, there are government student loans that can be there's some, there's some forgiveness there. They want to be a social worker, they, but they want to go to private school that's you know thirty five thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Well, how is a social worker going to pay that back? Mm-hmm. Well, they they can't. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard for parents to say to their kids, you know, sorry, you can't go to this school. Yeah, particularly after they visited the campus on a beautiful spring day. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's tough. Yeah. But you know, as a as a purely as an investment, mm-hmm. you got to make a good good choice. And, and many times going to a public school can be a much better choice or even a, a two-year college for a couple of years and then you know, get your education as inexpensively as possible, but avoid those student loans. Mm-hmm. They are, they're just going to kill you. They'll eat you up. Yeah. They really will. So I want to ask about Rent My Brain, your internet marketing consultancy focused on lawyers. Right. But before we do, I want to ask whether you've tried any paid online advertising methods. We've obviously talked about TV and radio and, and the Yellow Pages. Have you, have you tried... AdWords, uh, Google AdWords? Or... I have. 
Uh-huh. I, I have. I've tried AdWords. In my experience, and I mean, for bankruptcy, I have not been able to find the right ROI. Uh-huh. And again, I just did it myself because I just wanted to see what was going to happen. With Social Security, I didn't really find the ROI so much. Workers' comp, it does work. Uh-huh. Again, it's expensive. We work with a consultant. And, you know, I, you know, if you have a good consultant, I know that's what you do. Uh-huh. Then a good consultant can really make AdWords work. It's very, very difficult to make work on your own. Uh-huh. I think you've got to have somebody who watches it, who does A-B split tests, who mm-hmm. really tracks it all. Mm-hmm. But you have to make sure you keep your ROI in, in you know, front and center because it will. You know, it's real easy to you know, eat up a lot of money very quickly. Mm-hmm. But my experience has been that with Social Security and bankruptcy, the ROI is not high enough that I've been able to do. Mm-hmm. Comp, it is but we got to watch it. What are your goals in terms of cost per lead for those different practice areas, if you feel comfortable sharing? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I would say with Social Security, I mean, the, the fee that we get is basically capped at $6,000, 25% up to $6,000. So if you, if you spend more than two or three hundred dollars on a lead or on, on, a, on a client that's a lot of money mm-hmm. you know on a lead it's going to be more than that but you, you got to be really careful about spending you know you can't spend a, a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars for a you know for a client if you can only generate six thousand dollars three years from now mm-hmm. with bankruptcy if you average sevens and thirteens you're going to end up in the thirty five hundred dollar range for a fee which again is not always going to be up front so again I think your cost per lead is going to have to be I'm guessing a couple you know hundred Fifty dollars. Your cost per lead. So, or co- well, cost per client, not per lead per okay. client. Okay, all right. That your your cost per client. So you know your leads can be obviously different, but your cost per client. If you get too much higher than that, you start to really eat up your because you, obviously there's a conversion factor. You're not going to convert every, everybody that comes through. Yeah. So yeah, that that's kind of our rule of thumb that that hundred fifty two hundred dollars per client pay per click seems to work. Okay. What does that translate into in a into a cost per like on average? And you don't have to give your own numbers, maybe. Kind of yeah. what do you think the industry numbers are? How many leads do you need to get a bankruptcy client? Bankruptcy, I've generally found that I, if I'm getting leads from pay, and it's, I can't really say the paper because I haven't done that much. I'm thinking if you can do one out of five, if you can do a 20% conversion, you're doing pretty good. Social Security is probably more like a 10% conversion because mm-hmm. you've got to be so much more selective. But I think bankruptcy, if you can do 20, 25% conversion on your leads, you're doing really, really good. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can do more than that, it's even better, but that's kind of, a, I think, a rule of thumb that I would probably follow. So one out of five, that would mean that you need to target around $30 per lead on the bankruptcy side in order to be cost-effective? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I think you just have to see what the numbers are, but that that sounds about right. Yeah. That sounds about right. Because, like I said, if you, if you look, if you put it on a spreadsheet, again, you know, figuring, I'm just using $4,500 for Chapter 13, and assuming there's going to be a, 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 um, a deterioration, you're not going to get all that because some out of the case is going to go to $4,500, and Chapter 7 being about $1,500, at least for, for me, I'm figuring thirty two fifty mm-hmm. is what my realization for bankruptcy is going to be month over month. And obviously, you know, with 13, so it's going to take a little bit longer, but if you do it over the course of the year, you know, thirty two fifty, three thousand, thirty five hundred, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make your ads work with that kind of a, a fee. Mm-hmm. And that's not a lot of money, sure. because you can easily, you know, spend three or four times that in AdWords if you're not careful. Yeah. you got to be real, real real 
selective. And, 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 and that's the other thing with bankruptcy, as I'm sure your, your audience knows, it's very easy, it would be very easy to take in everything that walks in the door, but you can also take in some nightmare cases. Mm-hmm. I don't want cases where somebody's filed three bankruptcies in the past. That's going to be a lot more work. Mm-hmm. I don't want cases they've been to four of their lawyers that are bad-mouthing. Mm-hmm. I don't want cases where they got 15 rental properties. Mm-hmm. You have to be selective in choosing the cases where you like the clients and you feel you can help them, mm-hmm. and they're reasonable people. So $150 based off of 3250 that's 4.6%. Yeah. Is that how you got to $150 as your cost per client? Something like around 5%? Yes, I probably. I mean, again, I, I don't want to... You, you probably know more about the numbers when it comes to AdWords with bankruptcy, but the little that I did, I just know that my numbers were not... I, it was costing me too much money per client. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm getting in this, it was costing me five or $600 in a client, and I'm making $3,500, you know, over time. It was just too expensive. Mm-hmm. But obviously, then when you get, you have to also factor in, that's just the, the cost of the, the AdWords, but you also have to factor in if you can have a professional doing it for you, that's going to be a, a cost. And that could, you know, really raise your cost up. So you can't spend $1,000 to make $3,000, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, over time. To me, that's just, that's just too much money. Yeah. So... So that that's been my experience. So I I would not be the one to ask about AdWords for uh, for bankruptcy. I, I would defer to you. You know more about that than me. But I just I think you have to just really watch your ROI and watch your numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to put it out there for the audience, it, it is about thirty, thirty-five, forty dollars, depending on your area and how much competition there is. Atlanta is actually I've seen a lot of competition in Atlanta. So oh yeah. So I could see it. I could see it being a competitive market. Yep. But I think the numbers can work. It obviously depends on the area and how larger an area you serve yep. direct mail that's something that a lot of people have tried have you tried it on i have i've tried it with no success huh? and again i just did it on my own i'm sure there there are people that do do it well i just have not had any success with it mm-hmm. uh, part of it is that the i think it's hard to get good you have to know where to get the lists which i don't mm-hmm. i've bought a couple lists over the years and did it i just found that there was people would come in and they would bring me they got they got 10 letters mm-hmm. so i think the same at least in atlanta the same people that are they're all getting hit. The ones with the foreclosures and the repossessions, they're getting 10 letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the one, let me take that back. The one time I did it, that it did work, is I put on my letter, i never forget this, I want to tell you why, how I got your name. And I had people call me up saying, I really appreciate you telling me because I'm getting all these letters. I don't know why my name is out there. Because mm-hmm. they thought their identity had been stolen or whatever. And I said, I got your name from a list. There are a lot of lawyers and other investors who are buying these lists. I want you to know, and I, don't, I hope you don't take it personally, but because you are somebody that fits my profile, I thought I could help. I'm, I'm, I'm writing you. Mm-hmm. But I think if you do direct mail, do it a little bit different. And something like that could certainly be, be valuable. Now, did you try that on your law firm letter, letterhead? or I did. Uh, well, again, in Georgia, you have to have, you know, it's got to be very clearly marked. It's a legal advertisement and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I probably did it. You know, we just did it at our in-house. Mm-hmm. And I think if you have a printing house uh, or somebody that can do it in, without your having to do all the envelope stuffing and so forth, <laughs> it might work if you do it over time. I, it's just something that we, I just thought that there were other things I could do that would be better. And the other thing is, I think that when you're going after a market that's getting the same message, from 10 other people, mm-hmm. you start to get the, the tire kickers and the price shoppers. Sure. And that was not really what I was looking for. So people that are getting sued that haven't done anything, you know, you got to wonder why they haven't done anything. So I want to get them a little bit earlier in the process, I guess, is why I have never done much with direct mail. But, but I, I would be welcome the opportunity to learn why I'm wrong, because anything that works, I'm prepared to do. Yeah. Moving on to things that work, I'd like to ask you about Rent My Brain, because it sounds like you're helping lawyers with their internet marketing, using techniques that you've learned that work in your own practice.
practice. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I've done a, it's some sort of off and on type of thing. I'll get calls from people that either see a website or see a video and they sort of say, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I just felt like if I'm going to advise them, then I'll, I want to be compensated for it. So over the years, I've picked up, let's say, contracts from various lawyers. At one point, I was doing websites. There were, there were a couple of high volume law firms elsewhere in the country that were that wanted me to do their websites, which I did. And they paid me quite nicely for that, which was which was kind of fun, which was nice. Mm-hmm. But now it's more of a, I probably don't do that much of it anymore. There are a few, I have a few people that I'm doing a little work with, but for the most part, it's out there. If somebody was to call me, I'm not actively looking for it. I'm, I've got right now a couple of clients in that are not lawyers, just some, some small companies that had some issues with their website and I'll fix it for them. A lot of times it's just a matter of, I call it triage. Yeah, I got one right now I'm working on where they had a developer that basically left them high and dry and they, they don't have a, there's no site up there. Mm-hmm. So I basically got the site back up and running and, and that sort of thing. So I, I do that. But yeah, if, if somebody calls and they have a, they want to talk about videos, that's, I do a lot of that. They want to talk about theories, really more concepts for doing websites. They can buy an hour of my time or buy more than that. And I just think that, I think that you, as, as an attorney, it's, it's really easy to want to just write a check. I think that can be a mistake. I think you can, especially if you're a little hungry and you're willing to do a little bit of it yourself, you can save a lot of money and you get a much better a source of content. One, one thing I will say for certain, and then this is something that I've learned over and over and over, very, very difficult to get non-lawyers to write good content for law firms. Uh-huh. Because what you end up getting is, is people that are not lawyers who've never been in a courtroom and they're trying to write about bankruptcy, which is very technical. They're trying to write about social security. They've never seen the inside of a hearing room. Uh-huh. So you get a lot of what I call water is wet content. Uh-huh. You know, we fight for your rights and, you know, we make sure that, well, they don't know, oh, that doesn't mean anything. But you know, if you sell, this is how you win a case involving PTSD. Uh-huh. Here, the, here the, th- the theory of disability you want, or here's, you know, how, this is what you do if your car is repossessed in Georgia, how to get it back. That you can People want it, that they want to listen to it. They want to read. Mm-hmm. But if you have a non-lawyer writing it, it can be very difficult to get good quality content. So I encourage people if they're uh, we're talking about bankruptcy, I would say if you're going to do it, write your own content. Getting it up on the internet's the easy part. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of places you can you can get a website done almost for nothing. Mm-hmm. But the content needs to be coming from that in that lawyer's voice, mm-hmm. and that makes a big big difference because people respond to that. And you know the old marketing thing. You want people to know, like, and trust you. You want them to feel like, okay, this is somebody I, you know, that I really trust and I like, mm-hmm. and they're going to be an advocate for me. Uh, they're not hiring a law firm. They're hiring you. They're hiring Jonathan Ginsburg. They want me, mm-hmm. and that's what you want them to feel. So write your own stuff. That's what I would say. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is also that with the law, in particular in lawyers, there's a big intimidation factor. So it's not just know, like, and trust. It's also know, like, and trust and not be so scared to, to break down that barrier of intimidation. I think video right. is a great way of doing that. So It is a great way. You know, look, I mean, even play things like Facebook, and, and there's I, I'm starting to see some response from the results from my Facebook page. Yeah, you want to show a little bit of yourself, a little bit of your personality. You don't want to be this stiff lawyer. I know one friend of mine in the bankruptcy world, another attorney, he will do videos. He'll do it outside at the beach. Mm-hmm. He'll do it at a college stadium. It's just, this is just a regular guy. I typically do them in my basement because I like the lighting and the microphone and everything like that. But yeah, I mean, I'll talk about mistakes I made or I'll talk about stuff. And it's just a very homey way. I'm not giving information. I'm selling myself. And yeah, absolutely. A video can be a great way to do it on Facebook. Put pictures of your vacation. Mm-hmm. You know, I put pictures. I, I like to take photographs. So I go to, whenever, whenever I go someplace, I'll go to the zoo and take pictures of animals. And I'll put those up there. Mm-hmm. I don't put pictures of my kids up there so much, but I'll put you know pictures of myself and, and you know when I'm on a vacation or on a beach or something. Sure. Just so that people kind of feel like, oh, this is a regular guy. You know, somebody I, I like. You know, that, that's a good thing to do. 
I know some attorneys use newsletters and they put things like that in a, in a printed newsletter and send it to their client base to get referrals. Is that something that you've tried? I have done. The only thing I did with that, I think I mentioned before, I did the Consumer's Guide to Credit Bankruptcy, which I used to send out. Now I use an autoresponder. So what I try to do is get people on my list where I'll offer a free guide to, I call it a survival kit. Mm-hmm. And so it'll come by email. The bankruptcy one's called the Debt Destroyer Survival Kit, something like that. Mm-hmm. But they'll get emails from me. Well, I'll just give them information. But it's useful information. It's, it's very uh, actionable stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll give away letters, drop-dead letters, about how to tell people to leave me alone because I'm judgment-proof. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, stuff like that. I think that that's uh, that's important to do. But I think you can certainly send out newsletters if you do. I would say keep them brief. And you just you don't want to be – no one wants to read a, a 10-page newsletter, mm-hmm. and they don't want to l- learn about the most recent case. They want to know about how they can stop a repossession or how maybe war stories about how you you recovered $5,000 for this FDCPA violation, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think bullet points are good. But yeah, I think if you're going to do a newsletter, you got to just think about how you want to do it and do it yourself. But you know, there are companies that offer them, but I I don't think those are all that good. I think it's better to do it yourself. But you know, realize that if you can do the mailing, that's going to be a a big project. So it probably would be good to to get a mailing house to handle the details for you. Sure. For the email newsletter, just to drill down on that, and this is my last question. Yep. How many emails are in your email autoresponder sequence? Depending on the the area, you know, I I don't even want to guess. I don't know. With Social Security, it's pretty a pretty good size, several thousand. Bankruptcy, not nearly as many. Probably. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not asking how many people are on the list. I'm asking how many emails do you send? Oh, how many? Say, okay, I would say for Social Security, I think we're up to about thirty. Uh huh. Bankruptcy, I think I've got about fifteen. And is that sent? Three days apart, or you know, I send uh, typically I'll send every other day for the first week or two, mm-hmm. and then I go to maybe once every week. Mm-hmm. I think with email newsletters, I think email still works really, really well. I think it works better than social media. Mm-hmm. Works better than Twitter. Works better because people still respond to their emails. Mm-hmm. You got to have a compelling headline, and you've got to test different things. But email still works. I think that you don't want to send them if you send it once a month. That's not enough. I think it's got to be probably weekly mm-hmm. at most every two weeks and it's got to be valuable information and nice thing about most autoresponder companies is you can track your uh, your open rate sure. so you can see if this one's getting open 15% of the time or this one's open 50% of the time what what works better yeah. but yeah I think there's a reason that not to have as many they can always unsubscribe and you'll have people that will stay on your list and once it's done it's done mm-hmm. they'll be on your list for a year mm-hmm. and then they'll they'll call you yeah. so email is, is great and then your call to action from the bankruptcy side if I were to guess, mm-hmm. it's to fill out the two-page form. Yes. Yeah, or call. I mean, again, some people want to call, but most of them uh, just they fill out the two-page form and, and you know, we'll call you. We'll have an intelligent conversation. Like I said, it just it forces them to commit to a little bit. It forces them to do something and show they're you know willing to give you some information. And then you can be a better lawyer by you by telling them by looking at what they've sent you and and, and responding to it. Absolutely, Jonathan. I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Sure. Would you like to give us your contact information or email address if some other bankruptcy attorneys want to reach out to you? Sure. They can just email me. My last name is Ginsberg, G-I-N-S-B-E-R-G at gmail.com. Or they can go to my name, JonathanGinsberg.com. I've got lists of all my sites there. Or my law firm website is G-L-O-L-A-W.com, one of my sites. But all of those got form- have forms on there. But uh, yeah, email just Ginsberg at gmail is fine. I'm happy to chat with anybody. Always looking for making connections in other jurisdictions and sharing ideas because I think it's always valuable for everybody to do that. It, I think I've always been of the belief that a rising tide lifts all ships. And I strongly believe that. 
Awesome. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you, Jonathan. Sure. I'll see you all in the next episode.